Hello and welcome back to the Black Techies podcast. I'm your host, Herbert Seward, and uh, we've been gone for a minute, a long time. Yeah, we have. So for those folks out there that have been waiting patiently to follow, you know, to to check out another podcast and see, you know, what we've been up to, thank you for being patient. There's been a lot of stuff going on with all, all of us. Tonight we have you know, a new addition to our ranks as soon as she actually signs on. Uh, that would be Miss Ebony Burroughs. She's our newest black techie. So uh, when she comes on, um, we will let her, you know, kind of do her thing. Uh, but in the interim, uh, again, my name is Herbert Seward. This is Leslie Moore. And um, this is the black techie. So <sighs> there's been a lot of going, stuff going on yeah. in terms of technology. And in terms of not just technology, but technology and black folk. Tell me about it. it it's you know, been wild. Yeah, if you're not talking to, I mean, whether we're talking about Bitcoin and watching dog, you know, Dogecoin, you know, take a nosedive, you know, to all the consumer stuff that's coming up, you know, that's coming in right now. Uh, there's a ton of stuff that's going on. Um, quick shout out though to Johnson C. Smith's esports. And the swag, both the SWAC and the MEAC on the esports scene, HBCUs are really, really they doing it. They doing the damn thing. They they are really making you know their footprint known. And I gotta I gotta give a shout out to John Cash. We had him on a while ago um, when he was giving us you know his vision for where um, for where HBCUs should be in the you know in the e-space, esports markets marketplace in the space. And you know, lo and behold, it's coming to fruition. So, you know, shout out to you know, if you're watching out there, Dr. Cash. Shout out to everybody that's a part of that degree program at Johnson C. Smith, and shout out to everybody else that's you know doing their part to make you know our mark in the esports um, in the esports space. So, you know, kudos to all of y'all. Now, one thing that I wanted to also really talk about is um, some of the things that we've been seeing happen in terms of HBCUs and getting monies back from you know, state and federal governments. Um, one thing that comes to mind immediately is the settlement that the state of Maryland you know, had, you know, had to pay back in terms of the schools, you know, the state's entire you know, roster of HBCUs. And that, you know, Governor Hogan um, signed that in like probably a couple of months ago. And you're talking about $577 million worth of technology. And there she is. Hold on for just a second. Okay. Hello, Ebony, and welcome. <laughs> no worries, man. No worries. Uh, Again, for my art for our audience that's watching, Ebony Burroughs is the newest can member of Black Techies. We can hear you. Yes. Can you hear me? Can you hear us, Ebony? Ooh, check your mic. Check your mic. We can hear you. Okay, okay. Hold on for just a second. Hold tight, Eb. Hold tight. Yeah. 
Can you hear us, Ebony? Ebony, can Slightly. you hear me? I don't think she can hear us. Okay, hold on for a second. Bear with us, folks. And that might have, we might need to just wait for Ebony log back on. In the, in the interim, like I was saying, um, schools are starting to really, you know, really see the fruits of that. And one of the ways they're starting to see the fruits of it are, you know, investments in STEM and computer sciences and all sorts of tech, you know, technology fields. And um, one of the things that, um, one of the things that may really, we may really see, um, you know, are, you know, some really mainstream programs like Howard and Morehouse and some of those places actually have a ton of really good technology programs and direct pipelines to, you know, to to corporate America in terms of those employers. Okay, let's try Ebony. Ebony, Ebony. I can hear. <laughs> okay. All right, we got folk. Okay, we got sound in the background. I can we can hear we can hear the sound. Okay. So whatever's in the sound in the background, we can, you know, we might be able to turn that down. Otherwise I'm gonna Okay. What's that music in the background? Like oh, that's my sound. Oh, sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Okay. All right, no worries, man. Like I said, Ebony Burroughs is the newest member of the Black Techies, and I'm going to let her do her own introduction because, you know, Ebony is... Um, Ebony's background is kind of like, you know, kind of like myself and Dave's. We're bandheads as well as technology folk. So without further ado, Ebony, go ahead and take it away. Wow, I, I got to introduce myself. I, I did not do my homework. Um. <laughs> this is your trial by fire. All right. Going in, you're, you're swimming uh, with the fishes right now, man. I know, right? Um, all right. Well, let's see. Uh, yes, my name is Ebony Burroughs. I'm a graduate of North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University out of Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, I'm originally from Durham, North Carolina, Bull City, Bull City for life. Um, let's see. I'm a band head. Uh, I marched in A&T's band. I play piccolo and flute or Shall I say I used to play piccolo and flute? I can't play it all anymore. <laughs> and now, <laughs> and I've spent over twenty years in IT. I was a graphics major in undergrad. Um, I did a lot of freelance work for about maybe ten years, uh, but I I kind of started my techie career off as a uh, tech support. And then I floated around doing a lot of different things. I've probably had about four different careers in IT. Um, spent some time in the Microsoft space. But for the last seven years, I've worked as an agile practitioner. So you may have heard of Scrum. I've been a Scrum master. I'm now an agile coach. And that pretty much means that I know more than just Scrum. So <laughs> I coach. Yeah software teams, I coach organizations, I coach leadership um, in their methods uh, for adopting agile practices and culture. Uh, so that's, believe it or not, 
that's still in the tech space, <laughs> but it's he- it's real heavy on P. Yeah, and for those folks out there that uh, aren't recognizing the acronym Scrum, Agile, you know those concepts. If you're working in technology, you're going to find out find those things out firsthand um, a lot sooner quick. than you want <laughs> because learn quick. Those are, that is the that is the framework of how technology works these days. How projects get done, you know, how people plan long term projects, and all sorts of things. So that is the framework by which technology runs these days. Technology industry, you know, you know, technology jobs, and everything you could possibly think of. You know, you ask a developer about Scrum, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna give you they're gonna give you a frown. And they're gonna be like, yeah, yeah, really. Which I really don't understand. Why. Most of the time, when I run into developers and engineers that frown at Scrum, it's because they really haven't had anybody to help them do it well. You know, it's been forced on them, um, and some of the values of Scrum have been ignored. But at the end of the day, um, well, Scrum is just one of many practices of Agile, and it, it, it's all about people. So it's a Team centricity, um, self organization, self management, trusting teams with the skill set and knowledge to make good decisions about how to get things done. But probably the biggest round comes from having to work with this business people a lot. So if you've been on a project before, <laughs> you used to like somebody tossing over requirements. Well, we, we talk to the business, the business says they want this and they want that. And here's this big you know, this big document with all of these things the business said they wanted and here technology, figure out how to get it done. We'll see you in six months. But in the world of agile, it's constant conversation. It's technical people and business people constantly talking to each other, figuring things out together. And the positive part of that is you are able to deliver value and working solutions at a much quicker pace. But from a technologist perspective, what's really great about it is you're living in this environment where you're you're constantly you're getting to innovate. You know, you're not having people who don't really understand the technology, don't really understand the constraints of the software or applications you're trying to build or the environment trying to tell you what to do. In the agile world, technical people are trusted to figure out the best way to get something done, and then you're working with the business. Uh, to be able to influence what those things are um, and you understand who your customer is because closer you're constantly having conversations with the business. So, you know, I'll be I'll be honest, when I first learned it, I, I frowned and I turned my nose up at it too. Uh, my director was like, she went to a meetup and I guess they talked about Agile and she came back all fired up. And I was like, yeah, we're going to do this for like three weeks. And then we're gonna go back to the same way we've already done. We've always done it, where our business partners blame us when something doesn't go the way they think it should go. Um, yeah. But our team tried it, and, and we we all kind of fell in love with it. And I loved it enough to turn it into a whole career. So. <laughs> I like the agile and Scrum from a tester standpoint because most of my experience, my my software experiences, I'm I'm a QA, I'm a software tester, I'm the person that breaks all the development people's work. And they hate it. And thank you. That was my job. You made it. I break it. You fix it. So, I want folks that are watching the Black Techies 
right now to understand that from here on in, in terms in terms of our episodes and the topics that we talk about, we are going to be a lot more lenient about the filter that we allow. Because the <laughs> topics that we talk about are going to be real. And to be quite honest with you, sometimes we might have panel members that's going to have to, you know, we might be on a rant tip, you know, for an episode, for a podcast. I feel like so, you directed at me. Like, I, I, you know, Oh no! You have yet to meet our resident, our resident um, black militant uh, brother, you know, Dominique Bass, who's one of our other core members of the Black Techies. For those of you that are followers, you guys know who Dominique is. Dominique is a graduate of Tennessee State University. Um, we also have another, you know, pseudo, you know, nerd militant type of cat and Roberto Joseph, who's our Morehouse grad. And essentially those guys, uh, yeah, they straight no chaser, you know, (laughs) they call it like they see it. You you haven't seen the rant team. Yeah, you you haven't seen the ranch yet. Haven't seen the ranch yet. (laughs) (laughs) You're gonna fit fit right in, so. But in, 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 in talking about that, I wanted to get your opinion in terms of two, you know, both of y'all, you know, both of y'all are professional women in information technology that have seen a lot. What, what are some of the, you know, primary things that come to mind when you see, you know, minorities in STEM and, and the information technology space today in terms of, you know, where it's going, you know, what should, you know, new folks coming into the, into the space prioritize. What do you guys think? I like it. I like that we're starting to get more, especially more women. And I like it because what's happening is it's starting to change the conversation from, you might go from a development team that might have one minority person on the entire 10 person team to now it's almost equal numbers. Even when it comes to a woman's perspective, we're getting more numbers, which means our we're going from, oh, she's complaining about doing something to, okay, I value her opinion because we're all in the same space. And it's been so long where we will say something is wrong and they're like, oh, she's just complaining about it. And then it broke and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. That's great. Sorry you didn't listen to me in the first place, but okay, I guess move along. And, and and it it's just being real. That's how it was for a while. And now that you're we're starting to see more of ourselves in this space, the conversations are a lot easier and our opinions are starting to be taken a lot more seriously. Yeah, I can dig it. Because I mean, uh you know, it's it's really I know in my case, and I know uh, Leslie, you have have some experience as well as a government contractor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really um, it's it's a real issue sometimes, depending on where you work at and who you work with. Seeing that type of diversity for me, <clears throat> working in the DC metropolitan area, I've been uh, for those of you that don't know, I've been an information technology professional for over twenty five years. That's including military service. And, you know, uh, you know, I've gone from being a generalist to information security to cloud computing 
you know, that's what I do now. Um, I'm a cloud computing SME, as well as, you know, Office 365 and, and development, you know, in that space. So it's one of those things to be able to see people that not only look like you, but have the same type of experiences, be in the space, that's empowering. You know, where I work at right now, you know, I got a sister that's a program manager that is a Texas A&M grad. You know, she got folks that go to, that went to Jackson State with Southern, so we can speak the lingo. <laughs> um, you know, where I worked at for the Department of Defense, you know, a long time ago in the galaxy far, far away, you know, uh, practically all of our IT department, you know, I mean, a good 60% of them look like me. You know, look like us, right? So that sort of representation, you know, in certain parts of the country is rare. You know, in certain industries, it's rare. So whenever you get the opportunity to see it, you know, it's it's an awesome thing to see. Um, now, I know this is kind of an, an impromptu episode, a more of an informal episode of the Black Techie. So we're kind of going on the fly here in terms of topics. So... What are some of the things that you guys have seen in the news tech-wise that have caught your eye? Sony having something to do with Evo. Okay. That's kind of huge in the tech and the gaming community because remember, Evo was kind of an independent thing and it became sponsored by Sony. Now Sony's kind of picking up on that. Mm -hmm. And Microsoft just trying to keep making moves to stay afloat. Microsoft definitely is making moves to stay afloat. <laughs> and I mean, I think of, I know me personally as a gamer, you know, uh, I got to always go back and look at Stadia and see what they're doing. Because as somebody that works in the cloud space and looks at cloud gaming, you know, Stadia still being around and, you know, and still kicking is, is an eyebrow raiser to me. Because you know, you're already kind of occupying a space that Microsoft and Sony, you know, have kind of, you know, the gaming space has kind of been them and everybody else, you know, with Nintendo being a distant third. Stadia has uh, really, um, they have really stuck around and really surprised a lot of people. Now, I will say that them doing away with their own, you know, development studio, that was a horrible move. That That's was a horrible. good selling point. The fact that they had their own games being built within the software was like, okay, we're coming up with our own indie games and we're streaming popular games too. It was a good look for independent artists trying to find a niche or at least trying to get an audience to see their work. Now they yeah. have to go like hopefully get through Steam and any other, um, maybe Amazon might pick them up. But at the same time, I yeah. thought that was detrimental. More yeah, I'm going to try Luna out myself, but I'm not really um, enthused yeah. <laughs> about trying it out. Well, how do you really feel? I, say, I don't know what you're talking about. Um. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a gamer. No, you well. <laughs> Do not apologize. I got to be, I got to come clean and be fully transparent. I am not a gamer and I don't follow tech news. Not, not unless something major happens and it's on like the front page of the Guardian or something like that. Like I, I have no idea what's in tech. That is the joy of this podcast. 
You can learn that, so much. Is that we, we, everything. we all learn a lot about everything from each other. Okay. So yeah. we might not, you know, me and Leslie are kind of gearheads. Okay. Yeah. You know, we we're we're we follow everything. Dom is kind Dom Dominique is kind of in your boat. <laughs> Where, you know, okay. even though Dom is Dom is a you know is a tech guy, but he's a casual tech guy. Okay. Roberto is a developer and he's kind of, you know, the medium in between. Now, on occasion, we'll have our founder and de facto leader, you know, uh, Dave pop up on the podcast from time to time. Dave's off doing, Dave Matthews is off doing his own thing. Now he's got his own channel on Twitch doing his game streams. Now, Dave, Dave is a real gearhead. When we start talking about, you know, we're talking about, you know, cybersecurity and stuff, we're, we're just like, <laughs> okay, so I, I got I got a Twitch channel like I Twitch on I stream on Twitch whenever you know, I and, <laughs> Yeah, and they and, and that's and that's the awesome thing about this podcast because when we bring folks on, particularly our core members, they have completely different perspectives about tech and about how it impacts people's lives. You know. Um I mean, we can, like, for example, you know, we're, we can talk about consumer technology, you know, right now. Um, and that's more so something that really relates to, you know, a great majority of people that aren't technical, but they are, but they don't really know they are, <laughs> you know, because on some form of fact, some form or level, everybody's a techie at some, on some level. Because yeah, because we kind of have to be. That's the world we live in, right? It's the world we live in, and it's the work that we do. I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm not a techie. I mean, I work for a technical consultant firm. I work closely with technologists and data scientists, developers, engineers, and all different types of industries. Um, I mean, you know, so I'm kind of a techie by association. Um, and also by necessity, you know, and I'm one of those people that because I'm working so closely with gearheads, I mean, I can pick up on stuff. Well, I kind of have to pick up on things fairly quickly because if I'm going to coach people who are who are specifically technologists, then they need to trust me and in order to build that trust. I have to understand the language that they're speaking and I have to learn the challenges that they're going to be dealing with. So. You know, that's kind of how I work. So, I mean, you know, I just want to let everybody know, like, if I'm super quiet, it's because I don't have anything particular to add <laughs> to the conversation. But I'm still here. You know, I'm listening. And I'm <laughs> oh, no. Like, we could go off on a tangent. Just Man, this, <laughs> this, this podcast is all about tangents. So we might be talking. We might be talking about gearhead stuff one second, and then we might be talking about the handmaid's tale the next. You know what I'm saying? So... Yeah, but, I mean, awesome series, by the way. I, I do want to comment on your last question um, about, like, you know, how we feel about seeing uh, so many diverse people in the the STEM STEM industry right now. And you know, I, I gotta agree with Leslie. It does feel good um, to see so many women, but I think my experience is a little bit different. Um, there's so much attention being paid to hiring. Um, hiring and promoting diverse candidates, particularly black black people in the industry, right? 
But what I'm also seeing is a hesitance from people in our industry because we haven't always been in we we haven't always been in style, you know. <laughs> so I think you know my impression is you know black people in STEM have always been like when they gonna put us on when when they gonna put us on we got the knowledge we got the skill sets we keep getting overlooked without real without and sometimes not always realizing that the opportunity is ours to take. I mean, I spoke to someone um, a, couple, a couple of days ago and she'd been working for a company for over 20 years and was really upset that she wasn't really, you know, she's a technologist and she was really upset that she hadn't been given uh, the, the opportunity to grow in the company and fighting for um, fighting for raises, she had been promoted, and I'm like, girl, why did you leave? You know, why are you still with? Why are you with the same company for like twenty some years, complaining that they don't value you? There's plenty of other places where you can go, especially now because we're in style. You know, yep. <laughs> it's the age of the black techie. Why are you? Why are you? You know, don't don't sit on your hands complaining that they they not giving you your props. You know, but I, I think part of it too is just kind of being, just kind of always feeling like you're in this place where you're never going to be appreciated, and I think you get complacent. Yeah, that's in that that's area. like the first. That's like the first rule of, of information technology contracting. Them hoes ain't loyal. Oh, not <laughs> right. So, be loyal to yourself. Oh. You got to be your own best ally. Loyal. You ain't loyal. <laughs> we are. We are about our coins. We're about yeah. oh, the highest bidder is who? got you exactly and i think one of the things and you know like i said we everybody that's you know anybody that's listening to this podcast that's ever been a contractor on an it contract for a government state or local entity knows that you know it takes you could sneeze the wrong way and be off a contract you know and especially if you're you know if if you were a minority in that space, you have even less, you know, in terms of uh, not just in terms of how you execute on the job and, and, and your ability to excel, but even being outspoken on the job. So those sorts of things, you know, are always in the back of my mind when I hear people talking about us being popular these days. <laughs> because well, see, I've never been I've contracted I think I've probably worked a contract for at least eight to ten years of my professional career and I think but it's always been in the private sector and so for me as a contractor I can't speak for everybody else but I think for me it's important to know that I already got issues with authority so I never probably will fit in well in the environment but definitely in the private sector for me, I don't think I've ever felt like I couldn't say my piece or I needed to be quiet um, or I needed to just go along and get along. Like if something wasn't right, it just wasn't right. But I'm also a flight risk. Like every job is like, she might be here for a few weeks and then she, we don't know, you know? After my first contract, you know, I was like, you know what? This, for me, it was freedom. You know, it, it felt free for me to not be beholden to a culture, 
you know, as a full-time employee, you know, I could, I could come in, I could pop in work a project and I could tell people like, this is why the shit ain't working. You know, th- your process is broken. Why, why are you building tools? Why are you trying to, why are you trying to build a process from a tool when you should really be building your tool based on your process? You know, I also come from a business analyst background. So, I mean, I don't think I really ever had that concern about, you know, feeling, feeling like I wasn't able to really be my whole self. But again, part of that is just because I got issues with authority anyway. He was gonna take me as I am, or I was gonna go find another <laughs> job. So <laughs> Man, you gonna fit in here real good. <laughs> Man. Oh, you gonna now, fit just, right here. <laughs> now, just, just as a side note, what are you guys watch what are you guys watching on consuming on the on the boob tube these days? On you see on YouTube, Netflix. Whatever it is, what do, Ooh, what do you guys watch? Okay, um, besides the Handmaid's Tale. Okay, let me think about it. <laughs> I, I hadn't, I have not started the Handmaid's Tale yet. I'm waiting. Um, like okay. at all, or just this season? I haven't seen it at all. Like not a single oh. episode, not a yeah. yet. Now, I'm, I'm waiting. Like in the beginning, I'm so I'm, I'm envious of you. I'm so <laughs> waiting on this, but um. I last weekend I finally finished. I finally caught up on Chili Chess, Sabrina, and Castlevania. Oh my God, Castlevania was perfect from beginning. Man, uh, let me tell y'all. I been. I was. Uh, I I decided to to check out the Underground Railroad on Amazon Prime. How do you feel? When when I when I tell you that. And this goes for anybody else that's watching this podcast that has Amazon Prime and they decide to make that mouse click to watch that series. That first episode, you got to have your mind right for it. Man, you is so right. It was you so. Right for that. The Underground Railroad for me was kind of like them. Like, I watched the first episode and I was like, I'll be back next week. Like, I can't, I can't just sit here and watch this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to give out any spoilers for folks that, that are looking to watch it. But I, I'm kind of conflicted because I get where people are coming from in terms of the whole trauma porn type of deal when it comes to our history. But as somewhat of an armchair historian myself, it's important to tell these stories. And it's important to tell these stories the way they happen, no matter how graphic and no matter how brutal the facts are. And the thing about, you know, the Underground Railroad, them and series like it, is that Amazon ain't pulling no punches. They 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 ain't tricked. They it's you know, all they in yeah, they're trying to they trying to put people to sleep, and it's like, uh, yeah, bro. Uh, I watched that first episode. And I I talked to my boy about it. it's like, um, should I watch this? Oh man, you might want to if you if you if it's it's not for the squeamish. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say that. I, I also feel like shows like that aren't for us. Like they're like they're for us, but the like the messaging isn't for us. You know, like it's our story, and I am thankful that these are shows that are written by written or produced, written, produced, or directed, or they're they're brought to us by people from our community. So it ain't like no Quentin Tarantino version of Black. 
You know, yeah. <laughs> love Quentin Tarantino. I know people be hating on Quentin, but I, I do love his bloody gory movies. But it's not, it is stories told from our community, right? So I, I fully appreciate that. But I don't think the messages are fully directed at us, you know, and, and maybe that's part of the reason why it is hard for us to watch because, you know, but I think for other communities, it's a different type of experience because it's not so personal. I agree. And I think, um, like I said, it's, you know, it's one of those things where you have to kind of remind yourself that some of these things aren't made for us in terms of consumption. You know, but when you're watching it, and it's like, God damn, y'all showing another one of these stories again, man? For real? <laughs> what part I, of the game is this? Have, this was hot in the streets? I don't no. have Amazon Prime, so eventually I'll get to watch all of this. Yeah. I just really want to don't watch it all at one time. Don't, like, don't watch Underground Railroad and then, you know, like, make oh, sure that's like, up. You're going to be messed I'm up for months. I'm going to get them some months in between. I mean, it took me a minute to get my mind right after Love Cab Country. I'm like, ooh, okay. Yeah. 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 And I mean, and I mean, like from, like I said, for me, I'm a, I'm a history head anyway. So I'm, I consume documentaries like, you know, like I, like I'm drinking this mango Pepsi right here, <laughs> but it's, you know, those sorts of things also, you know, believe it or not, have real, you know, tie into how, you know, we talk about technology because the ready, ready, I mean, being readily, having that type of information being readily accessible to people makes a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, I could go on YouTube right now and, and you know, sneeze the wrong way and, you know, come into contact with a documentary that is absolutely ridiculously awesome, you know, and and that's the that's how technology has kind of affected how we, you know, perceive everything, you know, everything is readily accessible, even information that that some people might not want to know about, you know, is readily accessible, and that changes how we really think about how we utilize information and how people can, you know, ignore information for their own, you know, plausible deniability. So it's one of those things that, you know, it's gotten a lot harder for people to just kind of stick their heads in the sand and say, oh, I didn't know that that sort of stuff went on. Yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. But I feel like at the, it's still entertainment though, right? And I feel like at the minimum with these with these series, these movies that are that are for many very traumatic to watch are painful. Um, and it's not just it's not just black pain, right? Like, you know, for anyone that's seen them, there's a lot of other trauma going on in this series besides just racial trauma. Um, but so I, I kind of think that even though this is still supposed to be entertain, entertainment um, and that, you know, these are stories, you know, like these, these aren't documentaries, you know, this, this is, for the most part, this is fiction. It still presents an opportunity to ask questions. You know, when we look at how horrific slavery is depicted in a lot of these movies, 
or racial tensions are depicted, at minimum, it should make people go, was it really that bad? Let me go look this up. You know, so uh, where did everybody go? We're still here. Okay. I thought I was the only one. I was about to start singing. Uh, no. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah I'm trying to kind of give me a present the opportunity to start other conversations. Yeah, you have to forgive me, Ab, because, you know, I'm kind of like a kid in the candy store with this new StreamYard platform that we've started utilizing podcasts with. So uh, for those folks that are out there that are watching I'm like, you know, dog and dog sees squirrel. Like, I'm in the middle of time. I'm like, something just changed. I'll be afraid, you know? <laughs> Absolutely, man. Yeah. And I think that's the that's the other thing about this podcast that you know those you know I'm you know myself and Dave you know kind of founded the podcast. Um, well, actually, Dave Dave is the founder. He approached me about being on the podcast some two or three some odd years ago, and we were you know I was just like, man, I'm with it. You know what you what you want me to do. Well, we're just talking tech. It's like, are we people gonna really listen to us? It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, from then, it, you know, it's we've been putting out a lot of content. So the fact that we can expand our ranks the way we have, is, you know, for me, it's pretty special because we've been around, you know, for a good minute and been putting out content. And people have been receptive to it, and the fact that you know we got a lot of HBC love on the podcast anyway. You know, it's all HBCU heads and represent. You know, HBC representation. It's you, baby. You know, so I mean, it's something that for me it it means a lot. You know, because you know, I mean, between UDC and Alabama State, you know, I wouldn't change anything. You know, those experiences were just. You know, it wouldn't be anything else. You know, to it. Um, now. That being said, we're segueing into you know the next topic we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> the next topic we're going to talk about is Dogecoin and and Bitcoin and current and cryptocurrency in general. And I wanted to get your thoughts on how do you what do you guys think of you know cryptocurrency in general, and how do you think it's going to impact you know how black folks take take finance and take you know saving and take those basic concepts that we've been trying to get people to do over the over you know some odd years you know how's that going to streamline the process for people um i'm not gonna lie i rode the dogecoin wave i got in at a nickel i got in i got out at 70 cents and called it a day but i'm taking that money now to look into possibly re reinvesting into something else uh other stocks i've been paying more attention to uh what companies are about to go public a couple of companies that you don't you think are public already they're not not yet but uh made me just go back into i used to kind of quote unquote day trade as a hobby and that's how i got the money to be able to move but what i ended up doing is giving us an opportunity to look for something 
long-term, even if you don't know anything about stocks, but you're hearing so much about, oh, GameStop did this, GameStop, AME did that, and they're on the rise. It's like, it's making people start to start paying attention more to a market in, in such a fashion that we're not used to, but it's good that we need to start looking at these possible long-term investments even if you don't hit the next big thing get rich and get out even if you make some kind of profit how you can reinvest it to make more money and keep that going you can turn into something with your kids you can start treating it like a game like oh have you been noticing you know this stock might be this it's teaching a little bit more financial literacy which is something our community has always lacked for some reasons but then i'm not gonna get into my own little theory about it it, it ranged with doms but um, <laughs> it's we're getting more, we're getting to know more about the dollar and getting um, what it means. And I think cryptocurrency might be the future. The only problem it's ever going to have is what kind of actual standard is it going to keep? Because if we're going to keep it on the dollar standard, that's not going to be worth much. Even if we went, even if they went to like a metal, like maybe gold or a silver standard. And how would you? actually realistically get coins to translate even if a coin can have the same value around the world how would you get that to translate into the current market a lot of people aren't going to want to let that go yeah and i think what's happened with china and hong kong in terms of um in terms of dogecoin and other major cryptocurrencies has really opened a lot of eyes to that because you know hong kong was like uh no um, we're going to shut this down. And on top of that, you're going to have to be a professional investor in order to even partake in this in our markets. And that is, they were like, you know, the market's just like, oh, damn. Yeah, yeah that's not good. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, for me, you know, as somebody that's starting to really understand <laughs> the basics behind cryptocurrency and how those how the new digital currencies work, it was a real eye-opener. And it was a real eye-opener in terms of the volatility of you know some of these coins. Some of these coins that are coming out, like Shiba Nu, for, um, Shiba Nu, I think that's how you pronounce it. Shiba, yeah, Shiba Nu. Yeah, excuse me, Shiba Inu. You know, some people have referred to that as a, just an advanced Ponzi scheme because of how the coin you know, was really inflated in terms of its value, and then it just dropped off the face of the planet. You know, so it's definitely something that it's a frontier that black folk can really, you know, learn more about. But just in terms of actual financial literacy, and I think, you know, both of you guys are on, you know, right on the button on this, you know, teaching more about financial literacy. Um, in general, you know, for our communities is paramount. And technology has a lot to do with that. Technology has a lot, um, you know, can be a real catalyst to streamline that process for a whole new generation of black people. So, yeah, yeah I'd agree. Know, technology is, technology is to the black community now what learning to read was back in slavery days 
like if you can, right. if you can learn to read, you can you can do anything, you know. Um, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about cryptocurrency. Um, I mean, I have a fairly diversified portfolio, but I got a guy for that. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't mess with, I don't mess with. Yeah, I just hey, you know, I, I heard about this thing, check it out, see if we should put some money in it. All right, I trust your judgment, you know. And he's a Hampton grad, you know, so I keep all I keep all my business with us um as much as possible. Um, but I don't know, I mean, I kind of felt like cryptocurrency, um is is potentially a, a new financial bubble um i mean i think in terms of uh leslie to what you were saying about the standard i don't know if that's really i don't know if, that's, if that really should even be a big concern because at the end of the day money is just this kind of fabricated ideal right like money isn't you know <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's whatever it's, value they feel like it is today like oh the dollar went up i guess the dollar went up yeah, you know, it's like somebody decides some some there was a decision made that coins, you know, made from you know, coins made from copper and silver and nickel or whatever, that coins and dollars with ink on it, like somebody attached value to that. And so I think if um, cryptocurrency is gonna stick around. Um, all all the powers that be have to do is bless it and say that it's worth something, um, or that or it can be traded for something valuable. And, and here's the space where it can be done. Um, I'm not. I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm risk averse. It's just that I'm not someone that's particularly interested in investing on that level. Um, but I I totally agree that. Uh, Financial literacy is important in our community. So wherever your how wherever your interests may lie, I think it's important to just understand just you know the basics. You know you don't want to put all one you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Diversification is important. I think Leslie, the idea you had about you know you got in early and then you made some money and now you're thinking about where where else you might want to invest. Those are just smart things to do. Um, you know, my parents um, were not, my parents knew how to pay bills on time. Like that was pretty much like the extent, you know, pay bills on time and have, make sure you got like life insurance. Like that was the extent of financial literacy. And, you know, but I was really fortunate that I learned very early on that you don't want to make, you don't want to live off of credit cards and you, you know, you don't want to have too much debt and that having no debt is, is true freedom. Um, so, you know, and then, and then of course the idea of letting your money work for you, I think that's like the new consciousness that our community needs to get into is figuring out how to move away from working for every dollar and letting your dollar make dollars for you. Um, mm -hmm. the, American dream, the American dream is not to, uh, it, it is not a, a hard day's pay for a hard day's work. You know, <laughs> that is not the American dream. The American dream is to get paid doing the least amount of work. <laughs> yes. yes. That's Work smarter, not harder. Yeah, anything else, they telling you anything else, that's a lie. They trying to get you to burn yourself out. 
the dream is to get paid doing as least doing the least amount of labor as possible or doing the thing that brings you the brings you joy you know like for me that's my american dream is to earn money continuously and still do the things that bring me the most joy so yeah ain't no reason to be out here working yourself to the bone for for pennies <laughs> yeah. out here killing yourself like i worked 80 hours and then you can't see or mm-hmm. like I, I had a, I had to work 70 hours this week okay did you figure out what sleep means because i could have yeah. sworn that needs to happen Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Nobody cares. At the end of the day, no like one will care that you that you work that you were a hard worker. Like, I mean, yep. <laughs> it don't matter. Don't it. <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you what. I was on a contract, and I will say their name on this podcast. I don't work for y'all no more. <laughs> United Geological, the United States Geological Survey. Department of Interior. These dudes gave me an award year before for custom fabricating a Jira and all in all uh, a Jira application platform from scratch, program and scratch, everything, you know, to really organize their projects and stuff. And the government was oh, we're impressed. You know, here, take this award and this gift card. Really? <laughs> then you know, you know, six, seven months later, you know, we're talking about well, uh, we're going to, do, you know, we're kind of looking, looking at cuts and and uh, cut back the contract. It's like okay, what's that about? So, you know, those sorts of things, you know, are 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 a lot more commonplace than people realize. And yes, I'm talking to you, USG, USG, USGS. You know, y'all <laughs> did a lot of folks like that on that contract wrong. That's just wrong, period. But, you know, like Ebony said, you know, um, you bet on yourself, particularly, in, you know, in, you know, in information technology, betting your skills, you betting your ability to grow in jobs. And, you know, for you new graduates that are looking at this podcast and are going out into the world as you know, information technology folk, bet on yourself. That means don't just rely on your degree. Rely on making sure that knowledge base continues to expand. Oh, yeah. Find yourself a niche. If you know what you like, steer your career toward what you like so you won't feel like you want to kill yourself and everybody around you. It's going to be stressful. I found my niche and my favorite thing to do was testing is like I didn't like building the applications because they would break. I liked breaking them purposely because I knew what mine would break. So I found my niche and I found what I like. Yeah, I, I found my niche in more times. Uh, <laughs> but that would be my advice is to um, is to not be afraid. Well, it's kind of a combination of what both of you are saying. I mean technology is a continue the world of it is a continuous learning culture right so whatever you learned in college whatever you got your degree in that is really just the beginning you know that is not the end of a that's the end of a chapter but it ain't the end of the book so if you're in stem or anything you know any any place in stem it's always going to be about 
this continuous learning culture. And part of being in part of being in a learning culture is to Leslie Leslie's point, identifying your niche and then directing and guiding your career, guiding your steps towards that niche. But as you do more, you learn more. And it's okay, you know, and you shouldn't be afraid that the thing that you were really passionate about three years ago is not, you know, you don't have the same type of passion for. If you discover something new that you want to invest more learning in, it's always cool to change trajectory and learn that. Um, I did read somewhere, um, I read in an article, uh, it said something about it takes about five years in order to master something. Um, and I can testify to that. I didn't realize that until I was, until that was me. But I mean, other people might be brighter than I. But for <laughs> for me, I think after I spent like five years in a particular area in my career, then I felt like I knew exactly what to do. I could I could teach this teach this to somebody else. I could help other people grow in it. Um, but right around that time, I was also changing up to do something brand new and something that was more challenging. So for me, it was like around every five years, that's when I was doing something different in my career that was more challenging. That's kind of how I got into Agile too. But yeah, definitely continue to learn and then point yourself into those areas where you're most passionate. And those, those two things together, you can't go wrong. Yeah. So this has been on my mind since like the middle of the podcast. And I got to ask y'all both this. What's better, Bayou Classic or the greatest homecoming on earth? Shit, easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I guess we doing this, all right? Bitch. Bayou Classic. Because we can hold it anywhere. Because we just had it in the Shreveport this year. I had the most fun I've had in over... I had been almost 20 years since I went back for Bayou Classic. And it came to me this year. So I was great. <laughs> yeah, so, I got to be honest. I've never been to Bayou Classic. Well, I'm going to say this. Hello. I'm going to say this. You haven't gone to both. Um, both of them are unique. I, I, it's, a, it's, a toy, it's a coin toss for me. Because I've gone to a Bayou Classic. I'm going to a battle of the bands the night before the Bayou Classic, seeing Southern and Grandma go at it. That was a unique scene. That was uh, <laughs> the battle I mean, of the bands is awesome every year. I mean, and I mean that this was in 2000. I went to to the last one here in 2019 pre-COVID, and it was just like, yo, there. I mean, we're standing in line at the Superdome, you know, Superdome, and there are people come from all over the place, all over. Not just you know swat country, but I mean we were standing in line with some folks from from Detroit, and they were just like, "We just down here to check out the bands." It's like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh-huh. well, yeah. I mean, well, for me, that's a given. <laughs> and, and I'll say this about you know, G, G, the greatest homecoming on earth. I've had a chance to check that out. Y'all crazy down there, man. Oh. I mean that can't. I mean North Carolina Antiques can't. I never seen a campus that packed. I mean, yeah. I think we went, we went down there on a Friday or a Saturday. Me and a couple of friends went down there, and I'm just like, man, we we swimming through people. I mean, literally. Yeah. 
That's why I can't I can't go to homecoming every year. Like I know people who do. They go every year. They you know they go up on Thursday. You know they coming back on on Sunday night. You know they resting up on Monday before they go back to work. And you know I know people who go up and they just stay for the day on on Saturday. But they go every year. And look, I. My my homecomings got live my the first year I came out of Anti. I was my first year as a graduate. I went back to Greensboro. I you know I had some brand new clothes that I technically couldn't afford to, to buy, but you know I was work. I had some new work money. <laughs> I saved up. <laughs> I still had people that was in school, so I had somewhere comfortable to stay. Um, and I, you know, I still knew people on the campus, right? So that first year I went back from homecoming, it, it was a blur. You know, it was, uh, that was the most alcohol I've ever consumed at one time. Um, <laughs> and it was like weed and alcohol. Like kids say no to drugs, but you know, when you over the age of 21, you do what the hell you want to. I, you know, all all things happening at one time. I went to a house party. This was the night before. This was Friday. Like, you know, this was not even Saturday. I went to a house party. Things got out of hand. I went to the game. I don't even know how. I think somebody drugged me to the game the next morning. And people was like, hey, girl, it was so good to see you at the party last night. And I'm like, You're you were <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember you. When did we we talk? Like, I don't, was you there? You know, a whole blur. And so after that first game, I pretty much knew, like, I'm not going to be able to do this every year. (laughs) So I probably just make the whole time in every three or four years if I I really want to do it up. But you're right. It's it's always a sea full of people. Um, It is different for me now because the the band room is no longer in Fraser Hall, and it was something special about the band marching from the field, you know, marching back to the band room, going up the hill. Like the, you know, there was something special about that, and it doesn't feel the same now that the band room has moved. Um, yeah. But you know, it, it's, it's not a bad thing for it to not be the same. It's a different generation of kids in the band, um, but you know, Auntie, they're still home for me. So. When I do get to go, I load up on, I make sure I got Pedialyte. You know, I make sure. <laughs> <laughs> I Advil, being gay, you know, because knees ain't what they used to be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I ain't gonna yeah. lie, man. I know for, for us, you know, for me, from my experience, I mean, uh, Alabama State and Alabama A&M, Magic Classic, that is quite literally, um, that is the de facto, you know, that's the de facto experience for anybody that is in the state of Alabama. I mean, you know, Birmingham is crawling with people the entire weekend. We got a battle of the bands that Friday night and Legion Field is sold out literally every time. You're talking about 60 to 80,000 people. And those folks don't need to sell out for the Iron Bowl. And that's Alabama and Auburn. So, yeah. It's, I, I feel you, because I mean, I, I marched my first one and I was just like, man, what the hell did I get myself into? <laughs> you know, and I mean, I had such a, I had such a fun time and 
it's those those sorts of experiences stay with you, you know, and they stay with you, you know, until you're pushing up daisies. You know, it's like we had, you know, I got a coworker that, you know, was talking about, uh, you know, he went to Alcorn State and he was talking about uh, his, you know, his yearly classic they had with Jackson State and they can't stand each other. <laughs> They're like, you know, they really can. Yeah. I've, I've seen it. Yeah, they can't stand each other. So it's just like, you know, those sorts of things are, are really, you know, for those folks that are watching, particularly high school folks that watch our podcast and considering going to an HBCU, do it. Those reasons are why HBCUs are awesome because you make lifelong friends, you create lifelong bonds, and the legacy and history of the schools that you go to, no matter where you go to school at, it's, you know, it's translatable to everything. So, you know, yeah. My experience is worth, well worth it. You're going to get, you're going to feel a greater bond, especially with those in your major. Those are going to be your best friends at like two in the morning. Y'all trying to figure out what are y'all trying to do? Yeah, I I had a conversation with someone um, recently about, you know, PWIs versus HBCUs and, you know, it wasn't a debate or anything, but it was a question about why is there so many, why is there so much pride with graduates of HBCUs? Like, you know, what's so special? And I'm like, I haven't, particularly in IT, haven't been in a professional uh, you know, the corporate life for over 20 years. One thing I can say, and this may not apply to everybody 100%, but in my experience, HBCU grads going to the going to corporate the corporate workplace with without a chip on their shoulders. You know, like my experience is black professionals that come out of PWIs tend to have this, you know, tend to be a little bit more, I got, I, I, I got something to prove, you know, or I got to make, I got to make sure I get mine. And sometimes that means I got to step on somebody to get it, you know, <laughs> whereas graduates from HBCUs have a tendency. And again, this may not just, well, necessarily apply to everybody, but definitely graduates at HBCUs going to the workplace with this attitude of, of course I should be here. Of course I'm good at what I do. I can't believe you thought differently. You know, it's like, pretty much. part yep. of it is because we were raised in instant we were raised in these institutions where excellence was expected. You know, like we did, you know, everybody looked like us. Who we was was who who we were as people, the way we looked, our style, our flair, the way we spoke, all of that was acceptable. So there there was no them versus us. You know, it was just us and everything that we brought to the table. And so then we go out into the world and dare people to not be down with you. You know, when you come from a PWI, there's always this, um, I think there's this this feeling, this survival, I don't know, this survival instinct. This time, you're constantly aware that you're a, you're a minority. I think that's what it is. There's this hyper awareness that you are a minority. And then you go out into the workplace as a minority. At an HBCU, you're a majority, you're part part of the majority community, you're protected, and you carry that with you when you leave. 
Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, to add on to that, I think, well, I think Ebony's spot on. I think to add on to that, too, once you get into the workforce, people see that HBCU, you know, pedigree. And sometimes you have people that don't really learn the lessons <laughs> of, of seeing what HBCU, you know, HBCU products are capable of, and they tend to underestimate what HBCU you know, products are capable of. I, I'm, I'm a perfect example of it. Got out the Navy, you know, they looked at my Naval service and the fact that I was an information technology specialist, specialist in the Navy. It's like, oh, you went to Alabama State. Okay, well, how good of a school is that? Good enough for me to quality, good enough for me to get the ASAP scores to, to do what, to get into this profession. So, and I mean, I think, I don't think there's an, you know, particularly when it comes to working in large private sector environments or the government, I don't think there's an HBCU product that has not experienced that, where you might be pitted against somebody from a George Mason or somebody from a Georgetown or a University of Arkansas or wherever. And the first thing that happens is like, okay, well, uh, yeah, somehow, some way, this degree has more prestige or, or that experience has more validity than the person that went to the HBCU. And not, you know, just about every time is, you know, it's a complete misnomer. You know, as I've known cats that have come from large, pro, you know, large schools, got degree, you know, couldn't even put, the, put a basic web page together. You know, I had to deal. You know, I had to train a lot of those cats in my on my first official job working for the Department of Defense. You know, as a contractor. You know, I'm not going to mention any names. <laughs> I'm not going to mention any departments. But yeah, I ain't gonna say them up. <laughs> right, but I don't think there's any. You know, anybody that's ever had that. You know, that hasn't had that experience. So, yeah. you know, for those folks that are out there, you know, got that, you got that HBCU pedigree, you got a lot. And yeah. that's something that you should wear on the front of your chest like Superman, because that's exactly how important it is. You know, yeah. that's real talk. It is not. And it, it is on purpose that when someone asks me where I went to school, I say North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. I do not say ANT. It does not say ANT on my resume. And graduates of ANT, if I come across your resume and it says ANT and not North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, I will <laughs> put that shit back. Um, just <laughs> like I said, I went to the I went to Southern University and Agricultural and Agricultural and Mechanical College. <laughs> you gotta say it all, like, Alabama State you know, University. <laughs> like, you gotta say yeah. it all, because for us, you know, we just say, "Oh, when the ANT, then you got people." Oh, like in Drumline? No, not like in Drumline. AT and T? No. So you gotta say the whole thing out. You know, I. Um, a couple of years ago, I was traveling for work. You know, I was traveling to New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, like every week. And, you know, I always made it a point to wear some HBCU paraphernalia. And if I had on a, a sweatshirt or a t-shirt or a pen that said a 
someone will always ask me about it. And I was happy to tell them about my school and when we were founded, what our mission is. And, you know, and it's because like we, we, we're the representatives, right? We're the living legacy and everybody should know where we come from. And like, you know, the Harvest Point, like, yeah, I think it is particularly in, in, in the private sector, I do think it is a bit, and it shouldn't be, but it is a bit of a nuance to come across people who are graduates of HBCUs and have and can bring high value into the workplace for the customers that they serve, and not just the skilled technologists or um, or just get, just not just people with high professional skills, but also who bring value in a lot of different ways. Um, the way that, like for for me, for example. I do a lot of work with um, my teammate resource group and diversity and inclusion. So I get the opportunity to speak publicly uh, to our entire company about what it is to be black in, in technology or be a black professional. And I talk a lot about my HBCU experience to people who really don't know what HBCUs are. So I think it's important that for every opportunity we have, we show up proud of our schools, proud of the, proud of our, the legacy that we're a part of, and we talk about it till we blew in the face. You know, people's always, you know, I went to Yale, I went to Duke, and I, you know, yeah, I spent some time in the Ivy League. You know what? I don't get two shits so, about your Ivy about these HBCU streets. Like, I'm right there with them. These people walking around here with these University of Phoenix socks like they got in a commercial. Right, let me show you blue and gold socks with the A&P on the side of it. Don't be shamed. Put it away. Yeah, and I think, um, I think you know, before we, you know, before we wrap things up, I think it's very important to kind of touch on what Ebony just said. You're talking about people that are walking around with, you know, for-profit universities on their feet. But you got, you know, a hundred plus some odd HBCUs out there, most of which have some pretty viable online programs for adults and for, you know, adult learners and, you know, for the new landscape. Take advantage of it. Don't, don't go to, you know, no no shade to the University of Phoenix or anybody or, you know, you know, Southern New Hampshire or anybody else, although I don't put Southern New Hampshire in that category. Those guys are, you know, been nonprofit for a long time. But yeah, if you, I mean, look, you got the opportunity, and this goes out to HBCUs too. If you got the opportunity to market and to attract, you know, the unconventional student, do so. Because, you know, that's where the future's headed. You know, it's not just going to be high schools coming out of high school and obtaining a degree. We're going to have adults coming back to learn new schools, new skills. We're going to have, you know, people that are getting out of careers to relearn new skills for a new economy. So be ahead of that curve. You know, North, I mean, right off the top of my head, Norfolk State, uh, Hampton University, Howard to a lesser extent, uh, because they still got some work. Um, Warhouse, you know, online programs geared toward continuing adults and, you know, unconventional students. Those sorts of things, and like I said, we tie this into technology a lot. That's exactly what I'm talking about. 
being the accessibility to that sort of education for everybody. You know, and that's where HBCUs can you know, really be on the cutting edge to do so for our communities. So, yeah, you know, if you're an admin watching this, watching this podcast, I hope you guys are out there, uh, you know, click support, follow us, please, you know, pass the word. <laughs> we need it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what we want. You know, we want, we, you know, we're an all-inclusive umbrella and there's no such thing as having a specific type of student be an HBCU student. Right. I mean, for me, I had an opportunity to go to multiple schools. I had, back in the Stone Age, 2001, it feels <laughs> 20 years, it's <laughs> so fact. Uh, I had an opportunity to go to, I had $64 million in scholarships. I could have gone to almost any school I wanted to. And I narrowed my choices down to two HBCUs. I was either going to Southern or I was going to Dillard. Those were my decisions. Out of every every school in Louisiana, those are the two schools I wanted to go to. And I was in Lafayette, Louisiana, where there is a school. And, I, it was it wasn't about the quality of education because the quality was spread out to the schools I wanted to go to. If I stayed in state, I was these are the two schools I was going to in state. But it came down to what environment made me feel the most welcome. I toured Diller. I was sold. I was sold on Diller. Bought a T-shirt and everything. Same day I went on the tour. I was I was ready to go. My parents will swear that this is where I was going. And then the dean of the honors college, Dean Wade, rest in peace. She took me and my mom on a tour of the campus herself. Took us around the honors college, took me to what dorms I was possibly going and even let me meet some of the teachers in the computer science department and the department head. So she made me feel like I was literally going to be cradled through the whole experience. And to be honest, I was. And I'm like, you know what? Southern sold me. And everyone on my mom's side of the family, if they didn't go to Southern, we were around it all of our lives. And so me saying I was going to my mom's alma mater meant a lot to her. And she said she felt like if I still had said I was going to Dillard, she was going to try everything in her power to make me switch to Southern just because how welcome she felt. And that it's that welcoming that HBCUs will give you that sometimes you're not going to get that from a PWI. You're going to get the, the red carpet treatment, but are you really getting that? I'm probably going to see you a lot, and so I'm going to be around you in the beginning so you'll get used to me kind of welcome. That's what made the difference. Exactly. And I think um, I think that's one of the things that, you know, particularly as this, you know, our you know, society becomes more and more and more tech oriented. Um, I think that's that's essential, for, particularly for Black folk, to have that sense of accountability. You know, and that's something that if you've gone to an HBCU, for those folks out there that are watching, if you if you've gone to an HBCU, you already know you're not a number. You know, you go into a class, you're accountable. If you're not towing your weight or meeting the standard, you're you're not only going to get the side eye from your professor 
that professor is going to contact your home. That professor is going to contact your folks that, you know, are flitting the bill or helping you out with the loan or whatever. And you're going to hear it from all sides for all, you know, for all intents and purposes. That's how it should be. Go to, a, I mean, you go to a PWI, odds are, you know, unless, you know, in very rare circumstances, you might have that professor that wants to take that extra time, regardless of how many heads he sees in class, what have you. Um, with the HBCU, you're not, you're going to get that, period. Yeah. I, I mean, every single professor I ever dealt with was exactly like that. You get this assignment done, you didn't get it done on time, you might get a message from your band director. Yeah, you need to get this assignment done. <laughs> we got a call yeah. from your professor. Like, Why didn't you get this assignment? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. You, well, Ebony, you, you already know. You've already you, you dealt with the master of that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think other people probably experienced that. Well, I did not experience that from 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 Dr. Hodge, but I'm sure other people did. Um, you know, I didn't have a lot of options when I was coming out of high school, and part of that was my fault. Like, you know, <laughs> I was I was a good student in high school, but I wasn't a great student. Um, I did not score well on the SATs. I'm still bad at taking exams. You know, I'm I have to. I I got a, a long list of certifications that I had to pass exams for, and it is work for me. So I did not score well on the SAT the time that I took it. Um, I did do good on the ASVAB. Um, I always kind of thought, and my dad talked me out of this. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to go to college. I'm just going to the Coast Guard. And my dad is retired Army. And he was like, can you even swim? You know, and I'm like, can you do that swim? Not right yet. But <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, I wasn't a great student. But I loved A&T, you know, um, I grew up around the corner from Central and Central was just too familiar. So I knew I wanted to get out of Durham. And, but, you know, every time I had the opportunity to, to see A&T's band, you know, like I was front row. And I took a couple of tours of the campus, um, just, you know, on a Wednesday, you know, just kind of me and some friends that drove up to Greensboro one day and we just walked the campus to see what it felt like. And it felt like home, you know, it felt like it was far enough away and had enough diversity. Like I, I didn't feel like I was gonna be going to school with people that I grew up with or that I went to high school with. I felt like I was gonna get enough of a diverse experience, um, even though it was a black college, a and T was where I first learned that black people was from Idaho. Like, you know, <laughs> black people in the square states, like, you know, <laughs> for real. Like, you know, it was a lot. I just didn't know, you know. Um, but yeah, I think my this is bad. I don't know if they still do this, but we had to take placement placement exams um, for them to recommend like what program you should you should major in. Um, so I had to take a placement exam and my mom was with me. I remember she drove, she took me up to campus so I could do my exam and figure out, you know, what I was going to major in. And I placed in the School of um, Business and Administration. 
And I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to go to school for business. It's boring. You know, my mom was always like, well, you know, you'll always have a job. I was like, I don't want a job. I want to be passionate about something. <laughs> yeah. So we talked to um, like the head. We, we talked to the head of one of the departments in the school of business. And he's like, well, you score pretty high. You know, are you sure you don't want to major in business? You can do all of these things. And I was like, no, I am an artist. I want to do something with art and computers. I had no idea what that was called. I just knew it was art and computers. And he goes, they got some over, they got something like that over in uh Price Hall. Price Hall. I think they, they got a program like that over there in Price Hall. Going over there and talk to Dr. Lord. And I said, Well, which one is Price Hall? It's the one with the with the, the, the radio station. Price Hall was the brokenest down building on the yard at that time. <laughs> And Man. you know, I go, you know, I go over there. And I'm like, damn, why I gotta be in the broke down building? You know, <laughs> but, I, I talked to Dr. Lord. I, I explained to him that I really love computers, but I was also an artist. I painted, I sketched, and you know, I worked in a lot of different mediums. And he was like, oh yeah, you want to be a, you want to do graphic design? That's what that's called. And you know, the major is graphic communication. So. The fact that I went to college and the data said that I should be majoring in one thing. And there were people there who listened to me when I said, but this is not what I'm really excited about. You have something here that I can be excited about. Like, this is how unprepared I was about college. I had no idea what the majors was. I just knew I was going to college. I was gonna go to college. Boom, I'll figure it out when I get there. But there were people there that like pointed me in the right direction listen to me. Um, and then once I got into the right program, I thrived. You know, I, I was nurtured. Um, I had instructor, instructors who, you know, when I slacked off, they got on me. Um, my sophomore year, <laughs> by the end of my sophomore year, I had a 1.6 GPA. And it was like, mm, so do you still want to be here? <laughs> <laughs> I did have people who checked me, you know, and they they saw that I had potential and I could do a lot of different things. And so like to both of your points, you know, you don't always get that at a PWI because the classrooms are larger, the campus is larger, and you do that, you have to work hard to be special to people. And um, I don't feel like I had to do anything outlandish in order to be noticed. I, I was just, I was one of the students. I chose this program. I was excited about it. And when my professors saw that I was struggling, you know, they had conversations with me and encouraged me. Um, so yeah, you know, I wouldn't, I'm glad A&T was the only school I applied to. Um, I'm glad I always knew I was gonna go to a HBCU. And I never even considered going anywhere else. Being from Durham, you know, I'm right there. Duke, Carolina, NC State. I mean, it was uh, always uh, <laughs> <laughs> those, those universities were were right there. You know, like that was that was a twenty minute drive either way. You know, so <laughs> but it was never even. I never even considered going to a PWI. I was always going to go to a black college. Well, I know. Speaking for myself, I'm a native Washingtonian. 
you know, born and raised Washington, D.C. So, you know, uh, I grew up, you know, spent the majority of my middle school and high school years right down the street from Howard University. So, I, you know, already had that exposure. Been on Howard University's campus millions of times, four times that I can count. And um, I literally, you know, I, I mean, I had opportunity to go to University of Maryland or to Towson or someplace else like that. And I was like, nah, you know, uh, I the one I wanted to do HBCU. I ended up staying at home for one year at UDC, you know, which at the time it had a completely different profile than what it has now. UDC is more of a, even though it's still HBCU, it's more of a, a really international school. Back then, that was a school DC kids went to school at. So it was like, okay, you know, if you went to school, public school in the area, you went to school, you know, in Southeast, Northeast, you went to college at UDC. And, you know, I had to, I did one year there and then I had like, well, I, you know, I, I got to get out, get out of, you know, get out of the area. Because like Ebony said, you don't want to go to school someplace where you feel like, you know, you're going back to high school, you know people, and you have that feeling, you know, for, for the more four, four more of your years. So, you know, some of the places I was looking at, I was looking at Southern University. You know, I, I, you know, I actually had been offered a scholarship, you know, by Dr. Greggs there. You know, unfortunately, that didn't come through until like the spring. And I was just like, man, I got to go someplace else. <laughs> so I was, yeah, I was looking closer, like at A&T, Norfolk State, places like that. And, you know, I have to see Alabama State. Alabama State was actually like third or fourth on the list. And my father was like, Alabama? Really? <laughs> you from Washington? <laughs> Going to Alabama <laughs> <laughs> and you know, he's like he, but he humored me, and we went down to the campus and visited campus, and I immediately fell in love with the place. You know, there's so much history on the campus. You know, see the civil rights movement, or at least a seat of the civil rights movement, because A and T had a lot of, you know, had a lot to do with that as well. Um, and I was just like, okay, yeah, this is what I'm going to school at. You know, because it was far enough away from home. It's ten hours away from home. So you didn't have the, you didn't have, you know, the dynamic of parents just popping up out of nowhere, you know, to be like, what you doing? <laughs> so, yeah, I knew that wasn't going to happen. And I needed, you know, and for that, for me at that point in time in my life, I needed that space and I needed that, that, you know, particular environment to grow. And that's what it did. I, I wouldn't change anything for it. And it's just... You know, so many really good experiences there. You know, I lived off campus, you know, in, in, in school run housing, which was awesome because it was like, we had to worry about the dorm, you know, deal with you know, a whole bunch of other stuff with the dorm and everything. But, you know, Alabama's, is a, that was culture shock for me. You know, Montgomery, <laughs> Alabama. And it was. That's culture yeah. shock. I'm from the South and Alabama is a culture shock for me. Look. You going from all my life, so you talking about a kid, you know, used to wearing New Balance and slouch socks, you know, <laughs> going to seeing cross colors and and all sorts of other stuff. It was just like, where am I at? What planet am I on? <laughs> so, but it was it was awesome, and it, I wouldn't, you know, for anybody out there that's watching and listening to this story, this yarn, um, 
you know, that's what going to HBCU is all about. It's growth. And it's making those bonds and and being able to really share those things far beyond your time at school. So, you know, I really, you know, no, that's one of the that's one of the driving forces behind this podcast. And that's why we have, you know, our core members, you know, have those experiences and perspectives the way they do. Because that's what we want to communicate to our audience. So that being said, we have been going for almost an hour and a half. Wow, this is a long podcast. Um, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and close out the show um, by doing, you know, make mention of a book that both myself and Ebony have been a part of. And this is the HBCU Experience, HBCU Band Alumni Edition. Uh, both myself and Ebony are contributing authors on this project, this anthology of experiences, and it is now on Amazon and it's Amazon bestseller. So by you know by default, you're talking to two Amazon bestselling authors here or contributors. So whatever that means. So <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So if you do, you know, if you can. Uh, after we end the show and we do our goodbyes, you will see an ad for the book and who's contributing on the book and where you can obtain the book. So if you want to find out more about HBCU band culture and how it ties into the HBCU experience, check us out. Everybody that wrote on the book, all 30 plus some odd people that wrote on the book, know have unique experiences and they have unique backgrounds and we'd love to see you know share those experiences with everybody so pick up the book and support us um in closing thank you ebony for coming on the show we welcome you with open arms you're gonna fit in more than you know <laughs> yeah, and uh, we welcome you. You're going to be an awesome addition to to our core panel of techies. Leslie's been the you know been the stalwart you know since you know Dave uh, crossed the burning sands and started doing his own stuff. Um, for future episodes, we have some pretty exciting stuff coming up. Uh, we're going to have a kids podcast uh, where we're going to have. You know, some kids involved, my daughter included, you know, whenever she decides she wants to come again, and, and sons and siblings and other and other kids that may be interested, depending on what week it is. Um, we are also going to have a woman in women in tech podcast specifically, which is going to have uh, we're going to have some other guests. Uh, I got some pretty special guests from my experiences lined up, some pretty heavy hitters. So Stay tuned for that in the coming weeks and months. Um, and hopefully the next couple of podcasts we'll have our full crew and we're going to be back to the regular shenanigans like we normally do. So for everybody that's followed us, thank you for bearing with us for our long hiatus. We're back and we're going to be back and putting out more content, bigger and better than ever. No, until next episode, hail Wakanda. Hail Wakanda. Ha, ha, ha.
The first ever HBCU Band Anthology, The HBCU Experience. The HBCU Band Alumni Edition is a collection of stories written by prominent HBCU Band alumni throughout the world. HBCU Band alumni who are doing great things in their careers, businesses, and communities nationally and internationally. The authors share their stories and experiences of how being a HBCU band member has molded them into the people they are today. Purchase your copy today and support the HBCU experience, the HBCU Band Alumni Edition at Amazon.com.